You're listening to the Common Descent Podcast. Hello, David. Hello, Will. And hello, listeners. Welcome to episode 46 of the Common Descent Podcast. Welcome back. Today we have uh, a very fitting topic for October. We are talking about cryptozoology. Ooh, this is one that I know Will has been excited about for a long time. I've been looking forward to this one so much. So cryptozoology is something near and dear to my heart. I love this concept. And briefly, this is the study of all of those animals, creatures, monsters. The term could vary. We'll get into that later on. But these creatures that are seemingly hidden out there in the world and they're the ones you typically think of bigfoot and nessie and all of those this is the study or search for those creatures but what does that have to do with our podcast well i'm glad you asked so in this episode we'll be taking a look at this topic because believe it or not it actually intersects with paleontology pretty often (laughs) it has a lot of crossover with that top with with our topic and that topic and we will be looking at what is cryptozoology? Give you a brief intro into that concept and what it deals with, how it intersects with our topic, our field of study. And then we're going to go into a little bit on why it's such a contentious issue. Why does it seem so often that many scientists do not give it much uh, weight, much validity? And why are these ideas persist? Why do these creatures, these monsters, these mysterious animals continue to show up in our stories so we'll be going over those topics it's gonna be good it's i'm looking forward to this one so much it's an interesting interesting subject uh i'll be pitching a book a little bit because darren nash wrote a wonderful book that i definitely took a lot of notes on for this episode so you'll hear about that in just a little bit today's episode is not only one i've been looking forward to but it's also one that's been requested Uh, it was requested initially by lydia on facebook But we also just got a request on Twitter from Brian specifically for a Bigfoot episode, which we will absolutely be touching on in today's episode. So we will be hitting your Bigfoot topics at least somewhat in today's episode, Brian. So thank you for the requests, both of you. Yes, thank you. So before we get into the topic, we have some announcements. Not a lot of announcements this time. We're we're exiting our busy season, what evidently turned out to be our busy season. Yes. (laughs) (laughs) Yes. <laughs> <laughs> Our first announcement has to do with a bit of a tradition we have, as many of you already know, since it's happened almost every episode the last few episodes. When we get a new patron at a certain level, we shout them out. So that's one of the benefits you can get being a patron on our Patreon. And today we have Allison joining us on Patreon. Thanks, Allison. Welcome. Thank you so much. The only other announcement we have for today is that our special miniseries, Spookulative Evolution, the Spooky series. By the time this episode airs, our third episode will be out, and then we'll have one more this month, so keep uh, an ear out for those. Yes, we've discussed vampires, werewolves, and the swamp creature, and there is one left to go for the month of October. That's all the announcements we have this time around. Short and sweet. Light episode. Yeah. So that brings us to the news. Every episode, we like to start things off before our discussion with a review of some of the recent news articles to keep us up to date, to keep you up to date, 
and as to what is going on in the paleo community. So, David, what's new in the news? Well, I'm going to start with a bit of news about a tiny little dinosaur. Ooh. Uh, it's actually a tiny, huge dinosaur. <laughs> St- stick with me. Uh, this is a report by Carrie Woodruff et al. in Scientific Reports. We'll link to an article in National Geographic by Michael Greshko about one of the smallest known sauropod skulls ever discovered. Ah. So, quick dinosaur recap. Sauropods are the really big dinosaurs. Big, long necks, long, long tails. Remember these for later in the episode. Yes, these will come up again. Sauropods are famous for missing their skulls. Yeah, that does happen a lot with them. For example, Diplodocus, the are one of the most famous sauropods out there, there have been uh, more than 100 specimens of Diplodocus discovered and fewer than a dozen skulls. Wow. This new discovery is of a juvenile skull, the smallest known skull of a Diplodocid sauropod. The Diplodocids are the family of sauropods that includes Diplodocus and Apatosaurus and Barosaurus. There is in Montana, in the famous Morrison Formation, late Jurassic, an assemblage uh, in a space called the Mother's Day Quarry. Aww. And it's called that because there are more than a dozen juvenile dinosaur specimens that have been found there, buried in an ancient flood or mudslide. Oh, wow. In this study, they are describing a sauropod skull that is about 24 centimeters long, or about 10 inches which is tiny. Teeny tiny. Uh, these, uh, I mean, these animals already have small heads to begin with. <laughs> this animal was perhaps only a few years old, and they have nicknamed it Andrew, after Andrew Carnegie, who is a very famous philanthropist, who I believe gave his name to the Carnegie Museum. Yes, I believe so. Anytime we find a baby dinosaur, this is very exciting because we can learn about dinosaur growth, ontogeny, if you remember from episode 31. This one has been identified. Here's a, here's a little bit of scientific jargon for you. The official identification is CF diplodocus. And what a CF means is that it is similar to, mm-hmm. so comparable to. So it might be Diplodocus, and if it's not Diplodocus, it's going to be something that's very similar to Diplodocus. Uh, It could be something new, but our best comparison to it for the moment is the famous genus Diplodocus. This skull was excavated in 2010, and Woodruff and colleagues have noted that it has a bunch of really interesting differences compared to adult Diplodocus skulls. Notably, it has more teeth. Oh, that's Interesting. So in the lower jaw, it has 13 teeth compared to the 11 in the lower jaws of adults. And whereas the adults have all these peg-like teeth that are probably good for nipping up soft vegetation, the juvenile skull has some edged teeth. So they're described as spoon-like for slicing through vegetation. Ooh. There's also a different shape in the snout. The article describes uh, the young one, little Andrew, as having a narrow snout like a deer compared to the adults that have a broad snout like a cow. Oh, that's cool. And they're suggesting two things to come out of this. One, that this might indicate dietary changes. Mm -hmm. So the adults might be less selective 
that the young are a little more specialized in what they're eating, whereas the adults are more... I, and I, I like the term bulk feeding. Yes, yes. They're just vacuuming up whatever you can. And this gives us a little bit of a sense of how dramatic the changes are from young to adult, which has, and we've discussed this before, has been noted in lots of dinosaurs, has led to arguments about what are different species and mm -hmm. what are different growth stages. So this is another piece to that puzzle. I like this idea and this trend that has been seen in dinosaurs and modern archosaurs like the crocs in that a lot of them go through obviously big size changes because when you're the size of multiple buses you're you're not going to start out that big so you have to get go through size changes but also lifestyle changes that they are behaving very differently because we're so used to with most mammals that when you're a baby of that one you are just a you know you're you're a less experienced or not as good as the adult, but you're just a little version of the adult. But with a lot of these animals, they are eating differently. They're living in different areas. They're having to behave differently and their bodies shape yeah. differently. Well, in mammals, you are typically hanging around your parents. Yes. So it's a very alien thing for us. Yeah. But in other groups, you are competing with your parents, <laughs> which is crazy. And so you go through, this is a form of niche partitioning. Yeah. Where you're, in order to avoid running out of food, you as, when you're three years old, you are eating something different than your 20-year-old parents. Which is crazy. It, that, that's a weird concept, especially for mammals like ourselves, that you have to start worrying about your position in the, the niche, the, the food web other than just being small and being food yes. at the beginning of your life. That's really interesting. Now, we should note that there are addenda here. <laughs> uh, Michael's article, he is good about including uh, comments from another sauropod expert, another scientist who's worked on baby sauropods, Christy Curry-Rogers, who makes the point that she is hesitant with the interpretation of specific behaviors in this skull because... There's a bunch of pieces missing. The skull is deformed. And she makes the very interesting point that little changes, little pieces missing, little def deformations could easily change our interpretation of the behavior of this animal. Mm -hmm. So while it's very interesting to note the changes in the, the, the shape and the changes in behavior, perhaps we should be a bit cautious making very specific interpretations. And indeed, the article also points out that this, the researchers are hoping in the future to get the skull 3D scanned so that they can make, hopefully, better informed interpretations of it. Cool. So there will be more to come out of this tiny skull. I'm excited to hear about it. As am I. The next bit of news, my first news piece, uh, moves away from the land into the water, as is my trend we found on this <laughs> on this show. Leave it to the aquarium uh, I, guy. I did not do that on purpose. I hope you all know that. This just ended up being a thing that happened. <laughs> there was a shark bite discovered on a pterosaur bone. Yeah, I read that headline, and it made me very excited. Yep. That's one of those clickbait headlines that does not disappoint. <laughs> <laughs> Tell me more. So. Oh, well, oh, well, oh, well. There were some tooth marks found on a pterosaur uh, wing bone, 
and they were identified matching, interestingly enough, both a shark and a fish. So huh. this is this gets interesting. Sharks now, are fish aquarium, man. Yeah, it's true, but a non-shark fish and I a see. sharky fish both bit <laughs> this this pterosaur. <laughs> the research done here is by Dana Errett and T. Lynn Harl Jr. in the journal Paleos. And the article's from National Geographic, uh, written by John Pickrell. The bone in question is the wing bone of a pterosaur dating back to about 83 million years. Uh, so this is going to be Cretaceous from Alabama. And it was a pteranodon specifically. You know, the, oh, cool. the famous group of them. The, the most famous flying of the flying reptiles. Indeed. This one was a decent sized one. They were estimating it to be about a 15 foot wingspan and weighing probably 60 to 90 pounds. And while they were prepping it, while they were cleaning off the fossil for the sediment attached to it, they noticed some dark grooves. Uh, the person preparing it actually thought they had damaged it and was very worried they were about to be in oh, trouble. No. <laughs> yes. <laughs> and then they discovered there were more uniform grooves next to it and went, okay, no, this is, this is pre-existing damage. <laughs> they tooth marks were pretty obviously from some sort of predatory fish. Uh, so they immediately went and looked through various fish fossils in the museum collection there to see what matched up. And they found two culprits, one for the dark grooves and one for some less noticeable serrated grooves elsewhere on the fossil. Oh, interesting. Absolutely. The dark grooves went to Sorodon, a bar barracuda-ish fish that grew to be like four to six feet long. So very much like modern barracudas. The serrated grooves, as you may have already guessed, went to a shark called Squalicorix, which was a shark that reached about 15 feet long, so moderate. That's that's a little bit shorter than modern-day tiger sharks and a little bit bigger than your average bull shark, for any of you who are wanting measurements. These match those serrated marks. So both of these predatory fish took a bite out of this pteranodon at some point before it became fossilized. Cool. Yeah. So we get some interesting feeding analysis here. And tooth marks on bones is always really important because it's very rare that you get direct evidence of predation. And predator-prey relationships are typically uh, interpreted and inferred by the fossils or from the fossils. It is not often that we get direct evidence. And this is one of those cases. So it's really important. Now, what exactly happened while this biting was going on it's unclear if these were scavenging or if these were the killers of the pteranodon it's hard to know that's that's much more difficult to guess especially since they only have the bone they don't have the entire specimen right right but one expert did point out and i thought this was really cool just because it's not how i think most people typically picture pteranodons it's definitely not how i usually picture them is that they actually would have been fairly meaty animals they would have made a good meal yeah, I imagine they would have had big old breastbones. Exactly. Or breast, breast tissue. Yeah. Not, uh, meat. Flight muscles. You got to have muscles if you're going to fly. And we so often in, in art or at least in, you know, reconstructions, it's very easy to just focus on those thin, thin wings and think that they're just nothing but bone and skin. But they probably were very meaty and therefore makes sense that other animals would have been aiming for them as a, as a meal item. And it, uh, what I like about this... In addition to, obviously, food web, 
and the the notion that you have caught action mm-hmm. that this is something you can this is more than a bone you can see the action of this thing being bitten which is really cool and it brings this wonderful image to my mind i'm assuming predation uh, uh, a scavenging it could be predation but and i always kind of default assume scavenging it brings to mind this pteranodon floating on the surface of the water while sharks and things come up and bite pieces off of it. Yes, take bites out of the underside as it's exposed. They also made a very interesting point that there are various ways it could have gotten into the water. We know that pteranodons spent much of their time over shallow seas. Most of their fossils are found around environments either that were shallow seas or are near it. So they definitely were living near and probably feeding off of life in the water. And uh, one person in the the paper pointed out that they likely could float, just probably weren't as good at floating as today's birds. So they definitely could feed off the water, float, and take off again, uh, according to certain analysis. But uh, So that would have been a chance that they could have been grabbed if that this was a hunting incident. But they also said that it's just as likely that the Tranodon died somewhere and was washed into the water or died over the water. Now I'm picturing that video that was going around a few years ago of the seagull or pelican, one of those, that landed in an orca enclosure. Yep. And I don't know if it was SeaWorld or somewhere like that, but this bird had landed on the surface and then the orca came up and grabbed it. Yep, yep. (laughs) There's a lot of those cool videos. There's one of the tiger sharks getting the albatross as they sit on top of the water and coming up and grabbing them. Whoa. They know where the albatross uh, come in to rest, and so they gather around there during that time of season. And it's just these That's albatross cool. trying to avoid sharks coming up from beneath them. <laughs> it's So there's a lot of cool things. One person in the paper did make a note that they are not sure it was a uh, a hunting bite because they believe that if a pterosaur was fully bitten by a shark, it would have just shattered the bone. Interesting. That an actual shark bite on such a delicate skeleton would have just crushed it. So I wonder if the thick tissue would have protected it, though. Yeah. Like if it had a lot of muscle up there. And you you said that the serrated bites were shallower. Yes. And so So it's one of those where through the tissue it's there's a lot of things. I definitely tend to lean your way with scavenging in mind. Especially since sharks are big time scavengers. But the image yeah. of one of these leaping out of the water to take down a pteranodon is also pretty pleasing. <laughs> <laughs> yes, it is. Well, my second bit of news is also about fish. <gasps> You're moving but in on my territory. Number first of all, super weird fish. <laughs> and second of all, I'm only interested in the fish because they tell us something about mammal evolution. Okay. Okay. What? I hear you cry. Stick with me. <laughs> So this is a study in Current Biology by Hayu Zhao et al. And this article is also in National Geographic. We're big fans of Nat Geo today. Woo! By Jason Biddle. This is a study about a group of fish that has lost the ability to use the sun to repair their DNA. So if you look across most species of pretty much all life, there is a phenomenon called photoreactivation DNA repair. So certain types of sunlight damage DNA, right? UV, things like that. It's how you get skin cancer and stuff. Yes. But there is a genetic mechanism that turns energy from sunlight 
into repairing for the DNA. So That's it's awesome. Solar powered DNA repair, which is pretty cool. It's solar powered nanobots. Yes, I'm, I'm sure. <laughs> <laughs> but this research, these researchers looked at a case of a fish that has lost this ability. Hmm. The Somalian blind cave fish, which is a fish that lives in caves, has no eyes, has a you know this whitish pinkish color, lots of classic cave features. It's estimated that these fish have been cave dwellers for about 3 million years. Nice. So plenty of time to adapt. They compared these fish to normal fish and tested how well they can withstand damage from UV exposure. They found that not only do, do the fish themselves, the whole fish, have less of an ability to heal from UV damage to the DNA, but their individual cells also show less of an ability to do so. And when they looked at the genetics, they found mutations in certain genes that have broken them. These are called loss-of-function mutations. Oh, cool. And in general, there is less light-induced DNA expression in these fish. So genes that are turned on, activated by the presence of light, are absent or non-functional all across the fish, including the ones that repair damage to the DNA. That's, it makes sense, but that's, that's a, a weird set of mutations. Yes, so they have lost the ability to heal themselves. And what's really fascinating about this is that the Somalian blind cavefish is the only animal species known to have lost photoreactivation DNA repair except for all placental mammals. Oh. That is just about everything that is a mammal that you think of as mammals, including ourselves. Most mammals are placental mammals, do not have this ability. And the authors have pointed to an idea we've talked about before on the podcast, the nocturnal bottleneck. Yeah, we were troglodytes. (laughs) (laughs) So many of the features of mammals... We have an unusual eye shape. We have reduced color vision compared to most other Mm -hmm. vertebrates and most other animals. It has been suggested that these are things that we lost during an extended period during the Mesozoic of being nocturnal. Yeah. That our tiny ancestors found niches for themselves at night while the world was being ruled by diurnal reptiles during the age of reptiles. So they are suggesting that perhaps mammals lost those same genetic abilities for a similar reason, being out of the sun for many millions of years. It may be similar to how the cavefish has lost it. Yeah, when you remove the selective pressure on a certain trait, it's allowed to get mutated all willy-nilly because there's no downside to losing that ability if you're not using it. Yes. Now... In fairness, and the article points this out, fish and mammals are different types of animals. Mm -hmm. Three million years is different from tens of millions of years, and living in caves is different from being nocturnal. Yes. So, different scenarios, they might be more or less comparable. There's also the fact that apparently marsupials, and I assume monotremes, are fine. (laughs) They have not suffered this, so... Of course they are. (laughs) Of course, yeah, well, marsupials, <laughs> monotremes. 
<laughs> so it's possible that we have a little clue here as to how this may have happened in mammals, but certainly there is more to be discovered. That's bizarre. I like it. Well, speaking of our sun-resistant marsupials, I have an article about kangaroos. Oh, fun. We don't, Kangaroos have not gotten enough spotlight here not on this podcast. Nearly enough. They're super neat. So kangaroos being one of the most well-known of all the marsupials in Australia have been researched recently by looking at their teeth, and it was found that their, their evolution from tree dwellers to land-based herbivores happened at a different time than we thought it did for different reasons. Oh. Yeah. This is research done by Aidan Cozens and Gavin Perdot, and it's in the Journal of Science. This is a press release from phys.org, so you'll find that link in the blog, as all the links will be. So kangaroos today are found in Australia and New Guinea, and they're extremely well adapted to the dry and arid conditions of the outback. They're actually very famous for being expert desert dwellers. Uh, they have the cool thing where they can lick their arms to cool themselves off and ex <laughs> get rid of excess heat. All sorts of stuff like that. And as I mentioned, it's been known that they derive from tree dwellers who were browsers it living up in, in, the, in the branches and eating the soft leaves. And at some point, they came down and started becoming grazers, eating the tough grass. Traditionally, it had been thought that this happened during the Miocene, somewhere between 12 to 5 million years ago. This is about when the aridity in Australia rose, when things got more arid, drier, and dusty. And that's what they thought was pushed them out of the trees. So when things got more arid, they moved down and began to become adapted to that aridity. This new research disagrees with that. This looked at the macro wear on a bunch of fossil kangaroo teeth, as well as the crown height of the teeth. Oh. And they looked at a bunch, a bunch. Uh, these, are going, these teeth go back 25 million years, so past the Miocene, and they looked at 1,600 tooth samples. Wow. Yes. So they got a very good picture of the transition. And what they found was as the teeth transitioned from browsing to grazing, which means going from a short crown which is good for soft plants, to high crown, which is good for tough stuff because it can get worn down. Yeah, think our teeth with a root and the top on top of them compared to horse teeth, which have these yes. crazy long crowns on top of the roots. Absolutely. And this is a trend we see throughout animals that eat plants. This is a very common trait. They see that transition actually happen at the same time as when grasslands spread across Australia, oh. not when the aridity increased. So instead of being 5 to 12 million years ago in the Miocene, they found that it was actually 5 to 2.5 million years ago in the Pliocene. Interesting. So they came down not uh, because of the climatic conditions they were adapted to, but following the food. Yes, they followed. Once grass showed up, they came down for the grass. And uh, this is interesting because it also suggests things about transitions due to feeding behaviors and kind of rewrites what we had initially thought were the driving pressures for early kangaroo diversification. That's fascinating for many. There are so many reasons. Number mm -hmm. one, the idea that kangaroos 
evolved from tree dwelling to grassland dwelling around the same time that hominins did yeah in africa which is fascinating and also the fact that kangaroos as grassland adapted high crowned distance movers are sort of the marsupial version of horses right yeah they, <laughs> in a they very are, strange way they are definitely the horses now we do not know when they started hopping the article actually says that uh we we don't know why and when they started hopping around but yeah they they became larger and fast moving grazers along with the grasslands like many other mammals did which is cool yeah we talked in episode 38 about how the spread of grasslands affected animal communities especially large mammals absolutely and I, it's cool to hear about what it did in Australia, where they, where we weren't seeing ungulates, hoofed mammals, and we weren't seeing, you know, rodents and and primates like everywhere else. They have their own suite of creatures, the marsupials, doing their own things. But that that's a really cool thing to have a window into. Even the marsupials like grass. Yes. Well, who doesn't? Yeah, it's pretty great. And that wraps up our last bit of the news which will let us lead into our topic for the day of cryptozoology. So stick around for that. So cryptozoology. 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 Yeah, it's, it's a good term because it means the study of hidden animals. Yeah. That's what the term means. It's right there in the title. Yeah, it's perfect. The definition goes a little bit farther than that. And depending on who you ask, depends on how it will get defined for you. Uh, it's often synonymous or just used in place of monster hunting, which, once again, depending on who you ask, that's a perfect description or a short-sighted description. This is a very nebulous topic, depending on what point of view you're coming at it from. So there's a lot of different ways to look at this topic and to look at it as a field. So brief definitions, brief exploration into the field overall, and then we'll go into more specifics onto how it affects us as paleontologists. Wikipedia's definition for cryptozoology is a pseudoscience and subculture that aims to prove the existence of entities that the folklore records. Interesting. So these are... Creatures known from folklore, known from stories, and this is a, as it defines pseudoscience, we'll come back to that word in just a little bit, that aims to prove the existence of these things, of these creatures. The Cryptozoology Museum, so this is a pro-cryptozoology website, defines it as the study of hidden animals, whether large or small, to date not formally recognized by what is often termed Western science or formal zoology, but supported in some way by testimony, which could be stories or other evidences or some other evidence found from said creature. This one is is defining it as the search for animals not yet recognized by the other sciences based off of information or the reason they're looking for them is based off of information from story or trace evidences left behind by the creatures. Right, right. Anecdotal evidence. Anecdotal evidence, which is something else we'll get into later on in this episode. My favorite definition, the one that I think is the nice in-between of those two, uh, and the, the most precise, the most concise, more accurately, 
is Darren Nash's definition from Hunting Monsters, Cryptozoology, and the Reality Behind the Myths. This is his book that I took many notes from for this episode, and I highly suggest it. This will be my first book suggestion for this series. <laughs> it's really good, guys. He goes into awesome detail on different sightings of the creatures and the history behind them and the different points of view on them. So it's really great detail. His definition roughly is that cryptozoology is the field of study that investigates any animal that is ethno-known or known only from anecdote. And ethno-known is a term meaning animals that the people of a region know about through story, but is not yet accepted or confirmed by typical zoologists. That's fascinating. Mm-hmm. What a cool term. It's really interesting. The thing I like about the different definitions is it it actually gives you a good insight into the different views on this topic. The, the views that it is a legitimate field and the views that it is not. Yeah. Now, I have one other term to define before we talk about that topic a little bit, because it is a term that will be used quite regularly throughout this episode, and that is cryptids. Cryptids are the creatures that are being studied or looked for or of interest to cryptozoologists. Right. The hidden creatures themselves. Absolutely. So this is the coined term for these these creatures, and I will absolutely be using it because I love that term. <laughs> it's a good word. It's so good. And it's it, a good it catchy term. Perfectly captures it. It's cool to listen to those different definitions because at the beginning of the episode you you had defined you said cryptozoology is the study of hidden animals. And there was a little cringe in my brain when I mm-hmm. went, Well, study. Yeah. Theology. How how fitting is the ology there? And it's interesting to see that each of those definitions sort of comes at that from a different angle, like you said. Absolutely. And that brings us to the next question. Is this a science or a pseudoscience? Mm -hmm. And depending on who you ask, as you just said, depends on which answer you get. Some say yes, some say no. And it kind of depends on how you look at it or what part of it you're looking at. So pseudoscience, just to define another term, is, and I like this because this is something that's important to keep in mind in other realms of life. A pseudoscience is anything that attempts to explain a topic or issue using scientific sounding terms, but doesn't apply the scientific method. Either it doesn't make its data available, it doesn't make its process explainable, it doesn't use repeatable methods. Any of those steps that break the scientific method, it's not actually following that. And that's a pseudoscience. Sounds scientific, but isn't actually following the procedure. Right. Something trying to pass itself off as science or something that is perhaps nearly science, but doesn't quite make it. And sometimes this is done maliciously. Sometimes it is done just through lack of knowledge and know-how. But it definitely happens in a lot of fields. To some people, cryptozoology is a pseudoscience, and their main argument for that is that many people looking for these cryptids, when looking at their evidence, are coming at it with a pre-assumed right answer, that they, they are coming at it with a bias, a very heavy bias, and that they interpret their evidence heavily based on that and based off of intuition much times. What is good evidence and bad evidence is often what supports and doesn't support their their already assumed thought. Right. The difference between I am testing the hypothesis that this creature exists versus I am setting out to prove that this creature exists. I am looking for evidence of this proof. 
instead of I am looking for evidence of any truth. Yes. On the flip side, there are many who say that there are cryptozoologists come at it in a scientific way, that their data is the anecdotes, the stories, and the sightings, and whatever other evidence they can find. And they study it by sifting through for trends and patterns and uh, reliable sources, and that it is completely available for everyone and repeatable, that other people can look over their data and do the same tests they're doing. And from those points of view, it is absolutely following the scientific method. Mm -hmm. And there are some people out there who are trying to bring a much more legitimate and scientific approach to the field to try to legitimize it. So it depends on who you ask and which parts you're looking at. And it probably is, depending on who's doing it, depends on which one it leans more to. Yeah. (laughs) Oh, there are definitely people who are more rigorous than others. That's one of the things with this topic. This topic is not a straightforward, this is the study of blank and it is done this way. It has a lot of different kind of camps and a lot of different points of view and people feel very differently about it depending on which point of view you're coming from. So let's, we're not going to go too much into that because that's not the focus of our episode. The focus of our episode is, is the scientific view and especially from a paleontological view. But first, we've talked about what cryptozoology is. We've talked about what cryptids are, but what are some of the cryptids? Let's get an example, an idea of what kind of creatures, what mystery animals is a, a popular term for these as well. What yeah. mystery animals are we talking about? And as Darren Nash calls them, and I like this, the cryptid superstars <laughs> are... Like, yeah, the cryptid Avengers. <laughs> absolutely. These are the ones that you hear about all the time. Bigfoot, Nessie, Ch- Yeti, Chupacabra. The list goes on and on depending on where you are. The Jersey Devil, Mothman, mm-hmm. all of these things. Yeah. The other the other Bigfoots. The other Bigfoot, Sasquatch, and the, uh, what's the what's the Australian one? Oh, uh, the Bunyip. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Is that it? I think I think the Bunyip comes close. I think the Bunyip has also had a lot of really weird descriptions to it as well. <laughs> so you get a lot of these sea monsters, all of these kind of things. Mm-hmm. So those are your classic ones. You also get some that don't usually make the news as much that are kind of more mundane, but also fall into this category. And these are just weird versions of animals we know. Typically, very large versions of animals we know. Giant snakes, giant crocs, giant birds, crabs, octopus, squid. Animals of unusual sizes. (laughs) (laughs) Spoken of in local lore. Yeah. Right, a 30-foot crocodile that that everyone swears they saw. Well, it's I still read in things today. It's alligators can reach 20 feet long. No, they can't. No, no, they can't. (laughs) We have never, ever, ever found an alligator that was more than 15 feet. We've had people tell us they saw 20-foot alligators, but right, right. those kind of things, those kind of Interesting. these ideas. And there's been searches for these. You know, people put out rewards for snakes that were more than 30 foot. You know, right, right. I heard that this is out there. Go find it. So these are a very popular one. And it makes sense because we are always finding record breakers that are this is a ridiculously big individual. How ridiculously big can they get? And then there are these interesting pseudo cryptids these animals that we know are real but we didn't know they were real the entire time we've known about them Mm. so there's a few animals that fit the bill for being a cryptid up until we found them these are examples the most popular one is the okapi right this has actually become kind of a a mascot for many cryptozoology groups and websites and so forth the okapi found in africa is a cousin of the giraffe 
and it looks like a very short giraffe, but wearing the same pattern as a zebra. Striped, shorter neck, shorter body, but still a giraffish animal. And they are forest dwellers instead of plains dwellers. So they are living in among the trees. Their stripes help them blend in with the shadows. And they are very, very shy and secretive. They don't come out. They dodge people as often as they can. We first heard about these, we being researchers. The local people knew of them, but they first heard stories about these in 1888. And it wasn't until three years later in 1901 that one was scientifically recognized. So this is kind of that, it was an animal known through anecdote, an ethno-known animal that then was confirmed. This also happened a few years ago. There was a, a study that found evidence for a fifth species of taper. Yes. That for a long time, the people, the local people had said there is a different kind of taper in there, but the official scientific understanding grouped it in with Tapirus terrestris. Mm -hmm. And then a new study followed the stories and found these tapers and went, no, we find evidence to classify these as a different species. Same thing happened in, in South America with the giant peccary. It was told about, they went looking for it, and in 2003, they found skull and skin of it, and then they identified and named it Peccary Maximus in 2007. There's also the popular snub-nosed monkey, the no-nose chimp, that made the news not too long ago when it was found, named the snub-nosed monkey, the Burmese snub-nosed monkey. And this is found throughout Asia, but they went, they found it when primatologists went and looked for it in 2010 because they had been hearing stories about a monkey with an upturned nose. This is fascinating because under that definition, almost every animal was encrypted at some point. And that's, that's what the question here is, is do these animals, you know, especially with these very dramatic versions of we have been told this thing is and now we are looking for it. Were they cryptids before they were found? If so, were the people looking for them doing cryptozoology, making them cryptozoologists? <laughs> and and I, Some say yes, where, some say no. <laughs> yeah. This is where my that sort of gray area of like, okay, if you're a group of people that's going out on the hundredth search for some ridiculous creature that there's no good reason to think is real... Mm -hmm. Does that fall in the same category as the people going, you know, we've never actually explored here and lots of people have told us about this and there was this cool photograph or whatever looking for a different species of taper, which mm -hmm. is perfectly reasonable that, okay, yeah, maybe we missed a population of tapers out here in this jungle. And and it's one of those interesting things because based on the definitions used in the Cryptozoology Museum and Darren Nash, what they did with these animals counts as cryptozoology. Yeah, yeah. Animals they were told about by local from local people and went looking for and found. The line and the question, and we'll get into this a little bit later, as to where is the good science, where is the bad science, as to how, how much of that is reasonable and how much of that is unreasonable. And it's interesting. Now, one of the things a lot of people point out when going to look for these seemingly no-brainer animals like there's a lot of people that say you know if bigfoot was out there we'd have found it mm -hmm. one of the responses to that is well we we have been finding big animals fairly recently some very large the mountain gorilla was only recognized in 1902 and the komodo dragon was only recognized in 1912 so like 
the biggest lizard and the biggest ape were only found just over 100 years ago. So a lot of people make the point that there were big animals found all the time. <laughs> that was the comment that was made when the new tapir species was found. Yep. Like that's it's kind of crazy to find a new species of I want to say megafauna. Yeah. I, I don't know. I don't remember where the cutoff probably megafauna. But yeah, that's a big animal. Mm hmm. And so you can see where some of these things make sense. You can see where the idea comes from that if we're finding these kind of things and if these kind of things are happening, what about all these other animals that we also have stories about? You know, how, how are these stories so different from the ones that led us to the Okapi? So you can see that connection. There, it becomes very interesting for us when this connection rolls over into the paleontological. And so yes. this is going to be the, the focus of the next area because fossil animals have gotten roped in to cryptozoology in a number of interesting ways. And once again, using a Darren Nash term, because he is a master at coining fun terms. <laughs> the prehistoric survivor's paradigm is the idea used that says many of these cryptids are actually prehistoric animals that have either survived themselves or left a lineage that survived till today. Previously thought fully extinct only known from fossils, but has actually survived and is now the mystery creature that we are hearing stories of. And this has happened with a number of the cryptids you hear about. The quintessential example that you will hear for this is the coelacanth. Oh, yeah. This is the one that is pointed to and the one that, that seems to be the ideal evidence. The coelacanth is a fish that is well known in the fossil record. It was one of those early lobe fin fish, the sarcopterygians, so the fish with fleshy bits inside their fins. With uh, bony bits inside their fins. Yeah, with bones in there that gave them basically little legs and arms that eventually gave rise, that group, to tetrapods, us. These fish, as far as the fossil record showed, went extinct along with everything else that died off at the end of the Cretaceous, 66 million years ago at the KPG boundary. In 1938... A museum curator in South Africa was looking through the local fish shop for catches to find interesting specimens. This is a very common thing with people who study fish in fishing areas is you just go down to the fish market and you look through and every now and then you'll find a really weird one that either is like, oh, I didn't know these were found here or that's a particularly weird colored version of something I know <laughs> and found a coelacanth. A big surprise. This was crazy. <laughs> like, this was completely unexpected. And the interesting thing was it was already known by the inhabitants because they'd been fishing it. They knew they knew it as Gombasa or Mame, and they'd been catching it. Now, since that time, we know there are actually two living populations, the South African and the Indonesian coelacanths. The coelacanth is an incredible, wonderful story of a surprise that is co-opted very often Yes. By pseudoscientific proponents uh, trying to, to challenge the scientific paradigm. And what, what this case really showed, that was not something that typically we found a lot of cases for, is that this animal was able to effectively dodge the fossil record for 66 million years, but still survive, still be yeah. around. We call those Lazarus taxa. Lazarus taxa. It's a great Something term. Something that appears to disappear 
seems to disappear and then pops back up later on because it was never really gone. Just like Ra's al Ghul. Yes. <laughs> and this is a big reason why so many people have the idea. Now, the idea of prehistoric survivors came around way before Coelacanth did, but this was a really big boost to that idea. Now, right, right. it should be said that coelacanths are fish with very small bones and very fragile bones that can sometimes be very hard to identify because they are delicate and they can get broken easily, whilst most animals that fall into the cryptid category are typically large, robust animals that should be leaving good fossils if they were to be in the fossil record. Coelacanths are also deep water fish. Yeah, they are. Correctly, which is a harder place to find fossils. Uh, if I remember right, they tend to hang out, hang out around the edge of uh, seamounts. So steep, steep-walled underwater mountains. They're also one of very few cases of this. Yes. So, so the, the, as they say, the exception that proves the rule kind of thing. But that's where the idea is coming from. There have been a number of fossil animals that have been roped in this way. And for some of our very well-known cryptids, probably the one that has this has happened to more often than any other is plesiosaurs. Yes. Plesiosaurs, this has happened to quite a bit. Plesiosaurs... For uh, any of you who are unfamiliar, are one of the most famous fossils out there because they were one of the first organisms, one of the first specimens to be recognized as what it was, a fossil from an extinct animal. Yeah, Mary Anning, I believe, found the first plesiosaurs. Absolutely. And so this is going back to like the 1600s that someone finally went, you know what? I bet that's a thing that was here and isn't here now. And since then, they became... More well-known, it was about the 1800s that plesiosaurs were named plesiosaurs, and then they became extremely popular in the mid-1800s, about 1840s. So plesiosaurs are your the long-necked marine reptiles. They have a body kind of like a shell-less sea turtle. They look big, bulky body, four flippers, and then a long, stretched neck with a little head full of sharp teeth for grabbing fish. Yes, if you, and, and I, I'm, I'm skipping ahead just a bit, but <laughs> if you're having trouble picturing a plesiosaur, the Loch Ness Monster. Yep, and that is one of the ones <laughs> that it's been compared to. But even before that, they've been used to answer cryptid sightings before Nessie was a thing, which we'll get into. Sea monsters were the first thing that they were suggested to be. Hmm. Sea monster sightings are probably some of the oldest cryptid sightings, quote unquote. Yeah, I would think so. Out of all of them, we have evidence of sea monster stories, sightings, and beliefs of sea monsters going back to the Greeks and Romans. Yeah, there's here there be dragons. Yep, there's images on their pottery. The Chinese and Japanese have stories of them going way back. The Bible has the Leviathan and the great fish that swallows Jonah. The medieval Scandinavian maps have those wonderful here there be dragons, here there be monsters drawn onto their maps, creatures. Yep. <laughs> and in medieval texts, we know that people believed they were real because they were discussed in tandem with real animals like crocs and snakes and elephants and so forth. Ah, fun. So they actually had guides that would warn people about many of these ancient monsters. Some of them have fallen out of favor, like the basilisk and dragons, but the, these were among them. Now, here's where it gets interesting. Earlier sightings of sea monsters ranged. There was a bunch of different descriptions, giant fish, you know, giant versions of creatures that were known. But many of the more mysterious ones often described multi-humped, long-bodied creatures. This is what gave rise to many of the stories of sea serpents and is yeah, why the, the, the absolutely sort of up and down bodies. It's why we see that so up. still 
picture today when you want to make a cartoon sea dragon, you make it go whoop, 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 and then the head's sticking out. <laughs> that's because that's what actual reported sightings were describing them as, these multi-humped, bumpy-bodied, long, slender creatures. Until the 1800s, when slowly these descriptions started to change from long-bodied and humped back to large-bodied and long-necked. And this really took a notable jump in the 1850s. And since about the 1900s, that's been the main sea monster description. So it became the main sea monster description once we named plesiosaurs. Absolutely. Once they became popular, the monsters started to look different. And they started be being compared to plesiosaurs. And people started making the suggestion that maybe plesiosaurs did not die out and they have been roaming the oceans ever since interesting this is a trend that you will see a couple more times during this episode this has a very similar parallel to nessie the loch ness monster i'm glad you bring you're bringing this story up because yep. I, if you weren't going to i was gonna oh no this is a fantastic <laughs> i knew you were gonna be looking forward to this one because it's fantastic so nessie is a monster said to inhabit loch ness the largest lake by volume in britain and it's nestled within the scotland highlands and in this lake it is said that there is a creature leaving there named nicknamed nessie and the first sightings of nessie popped up in 1933 these sightings typically describe there's definitely some variety as to exactly how people describe them but it's that that can be explained because if i asked you to describe a tiger you might describe it differently than someone else so you know they described it typically as a humped-backed, long-necked, paddle-finned creature, typically with diamond-shaped paddles for its fins. Once again, a very recognizable body shape. These sightings became some of the most famous cryptid sightings, rivaling that of Bigfoot, which comes later, and reached such a level that there were actually researchers who described Nessie and the ecological requirements and the potential existence of Nessie and got it published in Nature. Wow. And actually suggested, this is in 1975, a scientific name of Nessiteris rhombopteryx. <laughs> so Nessie has a scientific name. <laughs> and these sightings just continued and have been innumerable and uncountable since then. The interesting part is that before 1933, there had never been any history of monster sightings matching Nessie's description. There had been other stories. There had been stories of creatures and, and spirits in the lake, which is actually a trend among human civilizations and societies that lakes yield creepy stories. And yes. there's a whole... There are creepy places. There's a whole psychology to be delved into there, but that's not paleontology, so we're not going to do it. <laughs> the other interesting part of this is a couple of things happened during 1933. The first one that many people will point out is that there was a road constructed in 1933 that ran alongside the lock. And many people said that it probably gave people a better view of the lock while driving by, which is what brought the sightings on, and may have even disturbed the shoreline to stir up things living there. Uh, there are some who suggest that Nessie's actually a recent arrival to the lock, that they, Nessie has not been there the entire time. That's why the sightings started. The one that we're interested in is that a certain movie came out in 1933, called King Kong, you may have heard of it, Yep. in which our eponymous character, King Kong himself, fights a creature very similar to a plesiosaur. There's also a part in the movie where a bunch of people in a boat 
yes. are attacked by a lumpy-bodied, long-necked dinosaur that grabs them <laughs> from under the water and has its neck sticking out. So make of that what you will. <laughs> <laughs> I heard a, I saw a talk by Tom Holtz who was talking about this phenomenon and that the early descriptions of the Loch Ness Monster were some kind of creature. Yeah. And that it started getting the reputation of a long-necked creature later in the year after King Kong had come out. There's even reports uh, in the interviews of the people who first saw them that confirmed that they had indeed seen the movie previous to making oh, the interesting. report. So like there there are times <laughs> where they can confirm people seeing the the creature had also seen the movie. So we've got cryptids based on prehistoric creatures and also based on popular depictions of prehistoric creatures, potentially. Absolutely. But it doesn't stop there. This is probably uh, the most direct version of this because this is not necessarily cryptids being connected with prehistoric creatures to say, well, we've been seeing these things and now we know about this animal. Maybe it's that animal. This mm -hmm. is us just saying that these animals survived and this is what we're seeing. Right. African dinosaurs. Yep. There's a series of cryptids in Africa. Crypt Africa is a big continent. It has lots of stories of weird animals. But a number of them all share similarities in that they are described either directly or very closely to being surviving members of the group Dinosauria. The two most famous ones... Uh, and by far the most famous out of the two is Mikole Mimbe, yep. which is a, a creature known in the mists of the Congo swamps to be large-bodied, about the size of an elephant, aquatic, herbivorous, though still aggressive toward many other animals, with a long yeah. neck and a long tail. It even got a movie. It did. It did Baby indeed. Maybe the something, something. Mm-hmm. The Lost yeah. Dinosaur or something like that. Yeah, absolutely. It's based off of this one. And it was suggested, and because of the time it was suggested, that it was Brontosaurus. That yes. Brontosaurus survived and has been living within the interior of Africa. Another one is Emila Nutuka. And I'm sure I'm not saying these correctly 100%. But this one was described as a large, gray or brown, four-legged animal. Once again, about the size of an elephant with a large singular horn off the nose, a long tail that slumped to the ground, tough skin, once again semi-aquatic, herbivorous, but still aggressive toward other animals, and, and by some people known as the elephant killer, and was described as being something very similar to a frillless ceratopsian, so Triceratops, Styracosaurus, those horned dinosaurs. This was one that had the horn but didn't have the head crest. And then there are others that fit very similarly into this. There's even the, some cases of uh, African pterosaurs yep, and things like that. Famously. Mm -hmm. the, the really interesting thing about these two is the description I just gave you. Both of these come from the early 1900s. About yep. 1913 for our Ceratopsian and I think a bit before that for Macaulay Mimbe. And if you notice, they sound like dinosaurs, absolutely. But they also sound mm -hmm. like classic versions of dinosaurs specifically they match the visualizations we had in the late 1800s to early 1900s yep tail dragon sauropods living in swamps yep and this is also about the time that dinomania was taking over this is when the first sauropod skeletons were going up in new york and london in 1905 drawing ridiculous crowds 
Like back during this time, dinosaurs were the hot thing because they were new and they were crazy. And so they are extremely well known. And so the point to be made here is that these look like those old versions of the dinosaurs, but they don't look like what we now know those dinosaurs would have been like. They're working right. off old ideas. And both of them also share a lot of features, which is interesting. They're both about the size of an elephant. They're both semi-aquatic. They're both plant eaters. And they're both aggressive toward other large animals. Mm -hmm. The only difference is one has a long neck and one has a horn on the nose instead. And being aggressive towards other large animals is also a thing that was common in depictions of dinosaurs. Yes. Especially, you know, we loved early paleo artists and still today love to draw and, and paint and depict these creatures as fighting and, and being primordial and vicious. And that was a, a common thought toward dinosaurs is that it was a savage time when everything was at each other's throats. And during that time, by the European and North American explorers that would have been going into Africa to make these claims, it was also a similar mentality toward Africa. Stereotypes and views of Africa during that time was that it was a mysterious, primal, medieval and and savage land with mystery with mystery in every reach within its interior the dark continent the dark continent so this combination of early dinosaur images and hype and frankly backwards stereotypes about <laughs> africa led together to go well of of course there would be dinosaurs there where else would they be <laughs> yeah and you get stories that, once again, were not stories before these initial 1900 sightings happen. Now, we have some more recent ones. This one is one that actually came about very recently. I remember when this was first suggested. And this has to do with some of the crypto hominids, which is another great term, which are your Bigfoots, your Yetis, your Sasquatches, your skunk apes. Mm -hmm. All of these hairy humanoids that roam the planet or seemingly seem to these are a group not necessarily grouped together all the time but definitely grouped together by most people who talk about them because they almost all have the exact same description in being large upright bipedal apes of some sort typically very close to humans very hominid in their description usually like six feet or more often more they're typically described as very big powerful looking with large feet that they leave footprints behind with. Yes. The Yeti and Sasquatch and Bigfoot are all almost the exact same description, just in different areas of the world. Yep. Uh, I think the the Yowie or the Yowie is the one that I was thinking of. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. The, the Australian yes. one. I have heard of that one before. And they are global. Yetis in the Himalayas, Nepal and Bhutan and Tibet. While Bigfoot is across North America, though very famously in the California, Colorado, and northern, western Canada reaches. There's been lots of explanations for what these creatures are. The one that pulls in paleontology the most, and there are others though, so we'll go over all of them. But the one that definitely got the biggest hype and has been brought up most often and still is used when they talk about this animal is Gigantopithecus. Yep. And let's just, like I said, this happened in our lifetime that that Gigantopithecus became a popular fossil and then was connected to Bigfoot. Yeah, big ancient ape. Yes, so what is a Gigantopithecus? This is the largest ape that we've ever found. It's 
It's found in southern China. Seems to have lived between 9 to 6 million years ago and up to 100,000 years ago. So we're still narrowing it exactly what the range was because they we don't have a lot of remains for Gigantopithecus. It's mostly jaw pieces. But based off of those jaws, we estimate it to, if it were to stand upright, be about 10 feet tall and weigh somewhere around ooh, 1,000 pounds. <laughs> <laughs> so a big ape. And the reason I love this creature is that it was likely a close cousin of orangutans. So it was probably a very, 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 very big orangutan. It made an appearance in the new Jungle Book. Yes, it did. The big Louie was a Gigantopithecus, and he works it into his song. He does. <laughs> <laughs> it may seem ridiculous, but this ape has been connected with Bigfoot. Basically, people right. saying, well, that's a big ape. And right, right. Bigfoot has always been described as an ape-like creature. So maybe Gigantopithecus or some descendant of it has survived and is now roaming different areas of the world. The main arguments against that is that Gigantopithecus was almost surely a knuckle walker. Mm -hmm. Orangutans are today, and an ape that size was almost definitely walking on all fours. It also almost surely did not have human-like footprints, which is what we see with Bigfoot. A big, big toe, and then little toes following the big inner toe. That's not likely what these footprints would have looked like. They probably would have had hand feet, you know, like opposable feet, like orangutans and most other apes. So there's not a lot of great evidence that this actually fits this creature. It's just a big ape. Yeah, it's an appealing target. Absolutely. There to, is to even, this up. again with the scientific names, a person who did their own reconstruction based off the jaw and said that to them it did look like something that would have been bipedal and upright and gave it a sign, said therefore that Bigfoot should get the scientific name Gigantopithecus canadensis. Huh. And so we have another cryptid with a scientific name, which is kind of, which is kind of fun. That, that's kind of fun, yeah. <laughs> now, it gets interesting. If Gigantopithecus did have human feet, that completely rewrites our understanding of hominid and ape evolution. <laughs> that would be really interesting. That would be a huge shakeup, because if the ancestors or cousins of the orangutan group had feet like that that either means that our type of feet are ancestral to apes or that it's been evolved multiple times and if it's ancestral that means that the other apes then re-evolved their hand feet their opposable feet after getting rid of walking feet. so it's there's a lot of messiness if that does show up not to say that that hasn't happened in the fossil record before but that that is less likely than it Unexpected. is likely yes now, there's not, that's not the only ancient hominid to have been suggested to be a Bigfoot. Two of the other members that have been suggested are a group known as the Robust Australopithecines, which is Australopithecus, one of the famous upright early hominids. Uh, Lucy is a member of this group. This was a group known as Paranthropus that was very similar, just more heavily built. You know, a bit taller, closer to our height, and just kind of more robust, as the name suggests. Yeah, we talked about those in episode 18A. Mm -hmm. These have also been potential Bigfoots. The one that's very interesting is Neanderthals have been thrown into the mix before. <laughs> the obvious issue is that Neanderthals, being just an ancient human, not even just hominid, they are another species of human. Mm -hmm. It's not likely that they were big and hairy. They probably looked like us just a little bit different. So some people have suggested a 
hypothetical evolutionary process known as dehominization, wherein a <laughs> hominid reverts to a form of lifestyle more typical of non-human primates, growing hair and becoming more bestial. The issue here is that that's not a thing we've ever seen happen before. Yeah, that would be very interesting <laughs> and strange. <laughs> so that's, that's creative. Yes, which is why I like cryptozoology because it gets that speculative evolution yeah, uh, it sure does. <laughs> juice flowing. So yeah. <laughs> now we have a couple more fossil groups to include in here, but we will get to them and into the broader discussion of this topic in just a moment. As we come back, we now enter Australia. Oh, fun. They have a number of animals that fall into the cryptid category. Two of the big ones that we're going to discuss, because there's plenty and plenty for everywhere that we've talked about, but these are these are two of the ones that jump out for the fossil record stuff, is the Queensland tiger and the thylacine, the Tasmanian tiger. Now, the Queensland tiger is a creature said to be sighted by people in the Queensland Eastern Australia region, and is described as, as the name suggests, a feline-like creature having a long tail, striped patterns on its body, similar size to a large cat like a puma, and a very similar demeanor to them as well. They are so popular that they've actually been included in certain field guides for Australian wildlife. <laughs> oh, cool. So they're very, very popular. Now, there's a few answers for what this animal could be right off the bat that already are in Australia. Quolls, which are known as the native cats or tiger cats, are a marsupial that has a similar overall body design to cats, but is still very marsupial-esque. And it's a small carnivore cousin of the Tasmanian devil found uh, in the region. There's also a bunch of feral cats in Australia. Cats, being an invasive species there, were brought over by settlers and now roam the wild of Australia completely freely and actually quite dangerously. They can be very aggressive, but they are quite big for going feral and hunting well the wildlife that is native to Australia and could very well be the cats people are seeing. That'd be a bit big for one, puma-sized, but size can often be mistook at a distance. So, Dr. Michelle LaRue does a Twitter game where she'll post pictures uh, and see if people can guess if the picture is of a what kind of is this a house cat is this a cougar yes. right mountain lion and it's surprising how easy it is to mistake the size of a cat absolutely from a distance. and so those are two very straightforward suggestions many have suggested though that it is a fossil organism surprise surprise and the fossil animal they suggest it is is another australian native and one of the most famous australian fossil marsupials thylacoleo yeah, the marsupial lion. The marsupial lion. This is a predator that roamed Australia in the Pleistocene between 2 million years and 46,000 years ago. And this predator is well known for a couple of key features. It had very large blade-like teeth in its mouth with dagger-like teeth up front, nipping teeth. And its most famous feature was its large, semi-opposable thumbs with giant hooked claws with retractable claws on the rest of the toes. So very cat-like in the rest of the toes, but then with this giant killer thumb wars thumb. <laughs> Some people have suggested that this might be the Queensland tiger. 
Right. Another relict, supposed relict from the fossil record. Another prehistoric survivor. The issue here is that Thylaco Leo shares traits with cats only in the name yeah. of marsupial lion. They do not have the same dimensions as a cat, and studies suggest that they probably moved much more like a wombat or qual or possum or some <laughs> combination. They, were they big waddle cats? Yeah, that they were wor- walking like many marsupials do. Mm-hmm. You know, Tasmanian tigers are one of the predators, though often scavengers, on Tasmania, and they waddle around like a wolverine, lumbering. So it probably wasn't moving like a cat, which is one of the main descriptions for the Queensland tiger. The most recent, though, of the Australian cryptids is the thylacine. And this is the one that's very interesting because this is the Tasmanian tiger or wolf, depending on which common name you hear, that was the top predator in Australia up until very recently. It was the largest mammalian predator since at least 3,500 years ago before its extinction. It was native to Australia, Tasmania, and New Guinea, but by the time European settlers arrived, it was already extinct on Australia in the 1700s, but still survived on Tasmania and known well there, even though they were still rare. The Tasmanian tigers, the thylacine, was, was initially discovered and identified in 1792 by settlers. The indigenous people, the aborigines, already knew about them and knew them well. They had actually been noted on their wall art going back to their early history. The reason this one is so interesting is that we actually witnessed their extinction very, very recently, considering that we actually have video of the last known living thylacine in human care. We sure do. In 1936, the last known specimen died in a private zoo, and there's video evidence of it. Between its initial discovery and then, its numbers slowly went down, mostly due to overhunting because people thought they were a threat to livestock, sheep particularly. Yeah. And since then, people have claimed sightings of them in the wilderness around Tasmania and Australia, and there's even been rewards put out for it over the years. Now, this is a really interesting area of cryptozoology, and the one that I have the most, not really, experience with, but I've written about this quite a bit. Creatures that we believe to be extinct, but which are sighted, which are ethno-known, mm-hmm. and so there are big communities of cryptozoologists and cryptid fans who are adamant that these are still around, that thylacine, you know, this isn't Uh, A lot of those other creatures that we're talking about are, this is a creature that who knows, you know, there's a lot of potential origins for where this lore, this myth came from. And we're trying to link it to extinct creatures as an explanation. But the thylacine, and there are other examples, are creatures that we saw went extinct. And now people are saying, that is the animal. That specific animal is still around. I've written about thylacine sightings a few times, and there are some people who are very scientifically attempting to investigate thylacine sightings. Uh, I've also written about, uh, there there was another case that I did an article about, the ivory-billed woodpecker. Yep, that's another one that was on the lists of animals when I was looking this up. Yeah, that went extinct fairly recently, and some people think that it's still around because there are stories uh, that match its description. And this is something that has happened before where we saw an animal decline, thought it was extinct, and then found a pocket of population still holding on somewhere. So it is a fairly reasonable idea, but it definitely has gotten 
wrapped up into the cryptozoological mentality and realm. The most recent one that I know of for this to happen with, not recently extinct, but the most recent one to really be bolstered into these ranks very heavily is Megalodon. Yep. Megalodon got pushed in there. Now, Megalodon had been known or talked about by cryptid hunters before Discovery Channel's documentaries, but those documentaries really pushed that idea that the largest shark we've ever known, Sea Megalodon, that reached between 40 and 60 feet long, is actually still out there. Yes, that it is now, instead of explaining oceanic sightings as plesiosaurs, we can explain them as this giant shark. Yes. And this one is is very much taking the same mentality as the thylacine, where it is it is not people saying, you know, ah, we're re-identifying it is. No, we think we are seeing Megalodon. You know, we are we are reporting Megalodon sightings, not sea creature sightings. Yes, it's not we found a creature. Maybe it's related to the marsupial lion. Mm-hmm. It's no. We saw a thylacine. Yep. And now we saw a Megalodon. Megalodon has gotten the same thing. Megalodon. And now though, it's a movie star. Yep. Yes, it is. <laughs> <laughs> but not a good movie star. So, you know. <laughs> <laughs> no, no, it's not. Megalodon, though, it has a whole buttload of things showing why it's not out there. The biggest one that I always emphasize and is, is my biggest pet peeve is the teeth. Sharks shed their teeth throughout their life continuously, thousands of teeth in their lifetime. For some sharks, up to 30,000 teeth in a lifetime. Like, ridiculous numbers. Where are the shiny new Megalodon teeth? Yeah. Well, where are where are the last two and a half million years of shiny new megalodon? Of shiny new megalodon teeth. <laughs> it's like, come on. But what can you do? This, this is what we can do. This we can talk about it. We, we can, can talk discuss. So why why have we been so hesitant and so probably to some judgmental of many of these claims? Why is there such resistance? Why is there such issue with these topics? Why why do the scientific community generally not accept the existence of cryptids absolutely why why is it looked at as a pseudoscience so often and for many groups more often than not Mm -hmm. it really comes down to the evidence the type of evidence being used and this is where we have to get into discussion of reliable versus unreliable evidence reliable evidence is the things you typically think about measurements you know direct measurements photographic and video Evidence that is clear and in focus, which are key, statistical analysis, and other forms of non-human measurement and data. Things that are unbiased, things that do not have an opinion. The ruler does not have an opinion on how big the footprint is. The camera does not have an opinion on what color the thing was, so on and so forth. The issue with most of the data surrounding cryptids is that they are almost all eyewitness yeah anecdotes anecdotes people saying they saw it could be stories that are told throughout a culture or someone specifically saying last week i saw blank and there are a slew of studies showing why eyewitness reports are actually terrible (laughs) and it's not they're not not evidence no they are indeed evidence. testimony is evidence But it's not necessarily always reliable evidence. They are very, very poor sources of evidence. And a few reasons why. I will give you a personal story of mine. I am burying my soul to you all here to an embarrassing moment I had. (laughs) At the aquarium, we take dolphin cruises. We go out into the bay surrounding Tampa and look for dolphins. 
And one of my jobs is to scan the surface and identify what we are seeing. Yeah, that was a dolphin, that was a turtle, that's a cormorant, that's a pelican. Well, we were out on the water, and I heard someone behind me say, is that an alligator? And I went, I don't think so, because we've not seen one out. I mean, it'd be possible to see one out here, but we've not seen one out here before. So I looked, and I saw a something. But it was too far out, and I couldn't get a good view on it, and it was just wavy enough that I couldn't get a clear image of it. So I went and got the binoculars. And I focused in on it, and I probably watched this something for a good solid couple to you know two to three minutes like just watching it trying to get a clear view and i was puzzling it it was rough it was bumpy it was brown and in in the light it was brown but it was very dark colored it was very dark brown so i was thinking all right could be i mean it bumpy lighter color than would be most alligators but it's not out of the the alligator spectrum but I couldn't get a good view on it, and it just wasn't convincing me, but I couldn't figure out any other animal that it would be. And then finally, a wave cleared, and it turned, and I could have sworn I saw the two eyes pop up. And I announced to everyone, yes, alligator, guys. We have an alligator in the bay. So we went and got closer to it, so we get a closer view, and we realized we were getting really close to it. It wasn't getting out of the way, and that's because it was a clump of moss stuck to something. <laughs> and it was being pushed by the current, which made it look like it had been swimming, because I could have sworn this thing was motoring, because it had the water pushing off of it. I researched alligators as my thesis in grad school. I work with alligators <laughs> daily. I handle the babies. I talk about the big ones at the aquarium. Every day I walk by alligators and I misidentified a clump of seagrass or moss as my favorite taxa because I was convinced it was an animal because I never considered it wasn't alive, that it wasn't a creature to be identified i think it also speaks to that preconception yeah the, the notion that you can be because this is something i've heard about where when uh when an investigator is interrogating somebody that you have to phrase your questions very carefully because you can influence the answer and i always like to relate it to and this is sort of a not necessarily a personal anecdote but presumably a everybody or mostly everybody anecdote the same way that all the weird shadows and noises in your house are completely benign, except for after you've watched a scary movie. Absolutely. And suddenly all the shadows take a different shape and all the noises have different connotations to them. In Will's case, dear listeners, one might imagine that a lifetime of excitement toward, directed towards alligators may have biased my, my beloved co-host. Or the simple question of, had the first person who noticed the thing, if they hadn't shouted out alligator, would I have identified it as an alligator? Would I have even been thinking alligator? Yeah. Simply that someone said alligator before I started looking could have been enough to seed that in my head. And this is where it gets interesting. Many of us perceive memories as being a snapshot of an experience. Whenever we recall them, we bring that snapshot back up, which is not what happens. Nope. Psychologists who have studied Memory and the effects on memory have found that what actually happens is when you recall a memory, you piece it back together, bit by bit, every part of the memory, and reconstruct it from the individual pieces of data. Which means every time you remember something, you could miss a piece or add a piece that doesn't belong. And if you're asked a question in a certain way or told that you should expect to see something, then those pieces of data can get skewed. Oh, yeah. You saw something and you were told you were in Bigfoot country. So when you remember what you saw, when you scratch your brain, you go, yeah, no, that's oh, absolutely it looked like a Bigfoot. Now that you mention it, that's our memory is faulty. 
There's a famous cryptid uh, example. The chupacabra, which we did not get to because it doesn't have a paleo equivalent, was described in 1995 for the first time. And when the eyewitness was questioned to describe it, they described a reptilian-looking thing with spines out of the back, loping and very creepy and, you know, like uh, xenomorphy. And they had the description that it was attacking the livestock. That same year, a movie known as Species came out. Yeah. Which is a kind of schlocky sci-fi movie about a alien-human hybrid looking to mate with humans. And when she takes her alien form, she is very reptilian-looking with spines coming out of her back that crouches around in a very creepy way. <laughs> it's similar to the King Kong example. Mm -hmm. I'm also, I think this was in that same Tom Holtz talk, a case of a, an alien abduction story that came up the same week as a marathon <laughs> on TV of a show that featured alien abductions. Absolutely. So that we and, and the the point of all this, of course, is that our perception there are a lot of biases that we can fall victim to these and many others. And I mean, this is why we came up with the scientific method. Yes, to try to get around the problems of personal unreliability. Not that everyone's liars and not that everyone is, you know, unintelligent, no. but that I it's very easy for our perceptions to be tricked. Yes. And to give you some hard numbers on this, there's a group called the Innocence Project that is since DNA testing, since DNA testing became a thing to use to test in criminal cases in the mm -hmm. 1990s, they've been using it to try to absolve innocent people of crimes specifically when focused on the death penalty but they've been going and retesting retesting cases most of which used eyewitness reports to reach the final judgment during their time since the 1990s so we're looking at almost 30 years now they found that of the 239 convictions that they've overturned using dna testing 73% of them were eyewitness testimony. That was the final nail in the coffin. Wow. So 73% of these falsely accused people were accused because someone gave a wrong memory that recounted yeah. a situation incorrectly. Or picked someone out of a lineup and got it wrong. Yep. So yeah, our brains aren't the best. We're bad data recallers. And there's, there's studies upon studies upon studies that show this. This becomes an interesting topic when we ask, then why are we still seeing these things? If we can acknowledge that we misremember things, why do we keep seeing them? And one of the big ones is another interesting study. And it's one of the things David was saying is we're by no means saying that people are lying or that people are dumb. But what science does say is that we all think we are smarter than we likely are. <laughs> A very recent survey earlier this year surveyed people and asked them if they agreed with the following statement, quote, I am more intelligent than the average person, end quote. Now, before you give the results, I encourage <laughs> all of our listeners to ponder your own answer to that question. Because when you ask that question, my immediate, my immediate yep. thought was, well, yeah. I mean, yeah, I mean <laughs> maybe a little bit. I mean, yeah, I mean, is it 51 yep. percentile maybe? Right. At least 65% of Americans said yes. And if you well, that know, can't be right. If you know how statistics <laughs> and averages works, that's impossible. We're uh, off by 15%. And also men said yes more often than women. There's 70% of men, 60% of women. Imagine that. <laughs> so we have a high opinion 
of our intelligence. Ergo, we have a high opinion of our opinions and memories. And as David was saying, we're also built to look for patterns. This is a thing known as pareidolia, which is we look for patterns in things where there may not be a pattern. If we are told there's a pattern, we will find a pattern, regardless of if it actually exists. And this is how you get everything from faces in pancakes to... Conspiracy theorists. Conspiracy theorists. The the famous... Connecting the dots that don't actually exist. Yeah, the famous Paul is dead from the Beatles. And the idea that you could put the record backwards and hearing messages and complete nonsense noise. Mm -hmm. Or even something as simple as when you think you heard someone say your name. Yes. Because you're listening for your name. Yep. You've been programmed for this sound means me. So when you hear something close to it, your brain goes... That probably was you. There's a lot of Stevens out there. <laughs> <laughs> that one gets me all the time. Right? <laughs> I My name is a particular burden since it's it's will. It's one syllable. So whenever people are in a crowd and they just yell any W word, but don't like, what? Where? <laughs> I, I often will be like, what? what? I don't know you. Who's yelling for me? Uh, <laughs> I had that all the time when I was in college over across campus. So all of these things lend us toward wanting to believe what we see and also there's the simple fact of if you think you saw a thing you might lean on it more because you don't want to seem crazy but also and this is really the clinch is a thing known as confirmation bias confirmation bias is a tendency to look for accept or interpret data that supports your point of view whilst ignoring discounting or avoiding data that does not yep So when you think Bigfoot is real and someone presents you data that matches what you think, you accept it wholeheartedly. And when someone presents data that doesn't match what you think, you say, no, that is that is false or that is faulty. And there's a great example of this. The famous example that went into this to a group was split in half where half of them were pro death penalty. Half of them were not this group of college students. This was in Stanford somewhere. So or somewhere you know, on campus, I don't remember what year, they were asked to explain that, you know, to state their positions, pro, not pro, death penalty. And they were shown two pieces of research. Now, this is a sociological study, so both were fake. They were doctored and made up to fit the study, but each showed, statistically speaking, equally convincing evidence pro and against that death penalty deters crime, that death penalty does not deter crime. Mm -hmm. The pro-death penalty side said... The pro paper, the paper that agreed with them, was very convincing, whilst the other one was not convincing, was flawed in some way. The other side said the exact opposite. And then when questioned after the fact as to if their stance had changed, both were now more staunch on their side of the argument than they were when they started. Yes, being presented with evidence count. Not only do you remember evidence that supports your ideas better, so if you're presented with you know, 10 examples of both, you're more likely to remember the ones you liked. Yep. But being presented with evidence counter to what you already think is true oftentimes makes people firm up their position. Actively trying to change someone's mind is more likely to make them more stubborn in whatever it is you're talking about. And this comes up in science communication a lot, especially when it comes to not only cryptozoology, especially the, the, the you know, often the more pseudoscientific corners of the the term, but climate change denial and anti-vaccination discussions and all sorts of stuff, people 
this is a very important thing to be aware of. It's it's the same reason that you can become convinced that your favorite comic comic book character is obviously the best one whilst ignoring all the comics where they do dumb stuff. <laughs> it's we find the things that we like to hear and we keep hold on to those. And this is actually why many suggest Darinesh, one of them uh, wholeheartedly in his book, he mentions this multiple times, that cryptozoology is actually a more interesting study of the human psyche and our psychological reactions to things in the unknown and the cultural effects of mystery animals. I agree with that completely. That's that that is the kind of one of the more modern ways of looking at cryptozoology and that it is not a study of the actual creatures, but the study of how we react to the potential existence of these creatures. I think that to to add a final note to this concept of having a preconceived notion and and sort of because we talked a bunch throughout here about how our culture influences mm-hmm. these stories, right? That these stories correlate with cultural things. It's always been really interesting to me where the cultural aspect overtakes the scientific aspect. And when people ask, you know, you know, when it comes up to something like Bigfoot, which uh, if you haven't noticed it over the course of the episode, listeners, we do not subscribe to the existence of Bigfoot. We do not. The notion of this being something that people are out to prove, to find, to we, there's we get just got to find that evidence. The the notion that the more popular something becomes, in a sense, you could argue the less reliable its existence is. Yes, because now there's all sorts of bias against it. Now everyone in Everyone in this country knows what Bigfoot is. That's already planted in your mind. And the fact that there have been so many sightings. Yes. And so many suggestions of evidence. And from a scientific standpoint, every one of those is a test of a hypothesis. And this goes back to what we said early on, the difference between testing your hypothesis and trying to prove the thing you've already decided on. If you've tested a hypothesis and failed to uphold it, 20 50 100 times that's not a very good hypothesis to to quote the x-files the issue here is that many people want to believe yes they want it to be true and and i think this is very important before we wrap up because this is another thing that has been coming up in conversation uh, and i've seen this around a lot recently I think it is very important to firmly establish <laughs> at least my perspective, and I, I think Will agrees with me. I, I think I know where you're going with this. That even if your favorite cryptid is not real, mm-hmm. if you love mermaids, if you love Bigfoot, if you love whatever it is, just because something's not real doesn't mean it's not fun. I, I still like Spider-Man. <laughs> well, well <laughs> Bigfoot is fascinating. Yes. Bigfoot is super cool. Mermaids are fascinating. All of our speculative evolution creatures we've talked about are super cool subjects and topics and what a neat thing culturally and and fictionally really cool. Bigfoot's fascinating regardless of its non-existence. Yes. And that's that's one of those big things is it doesn't have to be a thing that's out there to still be a fun thing. We're not ruining Bigfoot by not being out there. Also, for the contingency out there who have the mentality that scientists just don't want it to be real. No, we want them to be like, (laughs) are you you kidding? If Nessie was discovered, (laughs) we'd both be on a plane to Scotland right now. 
Like <laughs> we talked about this in a previous episode, mm-hmm. I believe. Yeah, it's it's a very interesting topic. There's books to read on it, plenty of them. It's fascinating. Oh yes. What was the name of that Darren H book again? His book that I was reading for this is Hunting Monsters, Cryptozoology and the Reality Behind the Myths. Cool. He also has written a bunch. He did yes. the Cryptozoologicon. Yes, he two did. of them, I believe. Uh he did oh, there's one that's um Oh, what is it? It's it's something uh, like the search for the Yeti or y- Yeti. I can't remember. But he's got some really good ones. Fun. So that's going to wrap up our discussion of cryptozoology for this episode. I could go for days on end talking about it. This is one, you know, we always say that this could be a whole thing in and of itself. I could do this without anyone else listening. Uh, this is, I love this topic. <laughs> this, is a, this is a one-man show. <laughs> this is what I do when I'm bored in the car. Uh, but... <laughs> This is going to be the end of our discussion. There's a lot more that we could talk about. There's lots more details, but we kind of gave you the overview of our personal opinions on it, but also many scientists' views on this topic and why it's such a potentially and oftentimes debated and contentious topic among the people who submit to the idea and those who do not. Fascinating subject, nonetheless, and always, always fun to talk about the the, the myths of living prehistoric creatures. And you can guarantee that if Spooky continues, this will not be the last you hear about cryptids. Yes, absolutely. But before we wrap up our episode, we have a patron question. Oh, fun. And a fun one at that. So we got a question from one of our patrons, Luke, who asked, I'd be really curious how you both think about paleoart. Is it more about the fun side of imagining the past, or is it something that is really useful in paleontological research? Excellent question. Great question. I'll let you... Well, I was going to say, uh, for, for to start, paleo art is the realm of scientific illustration that focuses on reconstructing prehistoric creatures, prehistoric environments. So many paleo artists are scientists or scientific enthusiasts or people closely aligned with science. Yeah, work who, alongside them. Yeah, put a lot of effort into accurate reconstructions of prehistory. Uh, Will, what do you think? I I personally feel that it absolutely can be useful to paleontological research. And this goes back to our speculative evolution episode. Paleoart is a really awesome realm to explore new ideas and spark new ways of thinking about an animal or an organism by drawing it in different situations. So I definitely think it can be useful there. It's also useful in uh, representation of mm-hmm. the specimens being studied in that if they are drawn uh, correctly or if they are drawn with certain stereotypes always present, it's going to affect the way the public absolutely thinks about them, but it has definitely affected the way paleontologists have viewed animals before. And just us accidentally making assumptions just because we've gotten so used to seeing them that way. And oh, so yeah. it definitely is really important for keeping our minds open and keeping our minds uh, aware of the animal we're actually studying. I think that's very true. I think that being able to represent your research is very important. Mm-hmm. And I would add that, because the question says, is it just for fun? And yeah, absolutely. Oh, wait, it's, it's tons of fun. And, you know, and or is it important for research? And I think, and this is a yes on importance to research, it's also absolutely important for scientific communication. Mm -hmm. which is itself very important for scientific research. Being able to put up a good, accurate representation of your prehistoric creature with your paper 
is really good for communicating your image of this creature to other researchers. And then I can't imagine paleontology would be anywhere near as popular in the public eye if it weren't for a good century of fantastic paleo art. We are visual creatures. If we can't see it, it's really hard for us to make it 100% real. Yes, paleo art is absolutely an essential part of the connection between the public and paleontologists. Just for sparking imagination, for sparking interest, for keeping people engaged with the science. And people being engaged with the science is how you get support, it's how you get funding, it's how you get interest, it's how you get new paleontologists. Yes, it is. I think that paleontology without paleo art would be a dramatically diminished science. It, it would be poorer without it. It would be like uh, astronomy without pictures from deep space. Yes, absolutely. It's awesome and interesting to talk about a subject, but when you can see it, it really brings to life whatever it was you were discussing. And it also changes how you view the thing. We were talking earlier about about the African dinosaurs being based off of old images and their behavior representing old ideas. If you kept drawing dinosaurs that way, it would be hard not to see them as lumbering and stupid if you draw them lumberingly around stupidly. Indeed, indeed. And just like Will said that there will certainly be more cryptid talk, there will absolutely be more paleo art talk. Oh, yeah. If it is what the hungry public desires if the masses demand it yes <laughs> and with that we will wrap up this episode so thank you all for listening and joining us on this delve into my madness my one of my favorite topics and we hope to see you next time of course we release episodes every two weeks fortnightly and keep your ear out for the final spooky speculative evolution episode if you have comments, if you have questions, contact us in all the usual ways. Keep your eyes out for the blog post. We'll put up links for much of the information given here. And thank you again to our suggestors, Lydia and Brian, for requesting this episode. If you'd like to hear more, we have bonus content on Patreon, so hit us up there. Indeed, this has been a lot of fun. It absolutely has. Let's do it again in a fortnight. I think that's a good plan. All right. We'll see you there, everybody. See you then. Bye. Thanks for listening to the Common Descent Podcast. You can follow us on Facebook, Twitter, YouTube, and check our WordPress blog for pictures and links after each episode. Huge thanks to our patrons whose support helps keep this podcast running and who get access to bonus goodies on Patreon. The song you're hearing is called On the Origin of Species by Protodome, which we found at ocremix.org. Thanks again for listening. We hope you'll join us next time.